Hey folks, Nate here. You're listening to Critical Care, a show about games, community, and the ways we play. This is episode 54, featuring Karen Malady, writer of Dear Future and regular contributor of DeepHell.com. Enjoy. I'm uh, Karen Malady at uh, Sweet and Awful on Twitter in uh, what one might call a misguided sense of social protest. I've decided I don't want to identify as things broadly. I'm open to interpretation. Uh, That said, I use any pronouns. Uh, Also, the act of witnessing something carries an implicit violence, so everything I say from this point on is a form of psychic self-defense from the listener. Recently, uh, I was one of the two writers for Dear Future. I'm currently working on an unannounced uh, video game, so keep an eye out for that. Uh, And you can also find my essay writing on uh, Deep Hell every other month. Uh, On top of that, I have way too many hobbies, uh, mostly rooted in poetry, but I also do uh, tabletop RPG design, uh, writing fiction essays, uh, and now also video games, which is the strangest thing to happen to me. Uh, Urban photography, uh, pixel art, I do a little bit of drawing, and I'm also an occultist. Yeah, seems like a seems like a busy busy schedule you you have there. So uh, appreciate you freeing some time to also add podcast guests to your your long list <laughs> of uh, of skills. Uh, thank you. Yeah, it was interesting going through some more of your work uh, to kind of prepare for this episode because I I knew you first from Dear Future, uh, which if people haven't heard me talk about that, you can go and read my thoughts about it on the site or just talk to me uh highly recommend people play that but through there i also uh kind of started reading your stuff on deep hell and looking through more of your like twine and tabletop games and was very uh surprised and and intrigued by just like the the breadth of of everything that you've you've done just kind of exploring lots of different mediums and and tones uh which I'm sure we'll get into some more of those specifically, uh, but I did kind of want to, I guess, start off to give some context, like talk about some of the, like the broader themes that you're you're interested in discussing. Like I know you mentioned stuff like occultism, which I've saw in several of your works. Also, themes of like transness and lots of different things. So I was curious if you had specific ways that you would describe what you are trying to explore achieve with your work kind of what are the the things that interest you i've always been really like fascinated by the uh interplay of a uh work of uh media and the audience as a uh conversation that's happening between two people who essentially aren't even remotely near each other Hmm. A lot of like my my poetry isn't really rooted in that per se, but uh, I definitely have some uh, unreleased stuff that really gets into that as well. So, I mean, even my introduction talking about like the act of witnessing like is really into that. I mean, it's a kind of time period where internet wise, you can just be on display your entire life basically, and I think the intersections of that with like media as someone who's like uh, mostly been connected with people through the internet most of my life is really fascinating to me. I've, uh, so that a lot of my interests kind of like lie in like a lot of specifically postmodernism as influence wise. Mm. Uh, but also at the same time, it's a really weird space because I don't really have a grounding in a lot of the basics that like postmodernism kind of, uh, requires as well. Uh, like the, uh, kind of like classics that they were kind of like playing off of and like subverting. Um, so it's it's really more of this sense of like, I, I create things out of a sense of like playfulness, but there's also a lot of intention in how I'm like being playful. A lot of trying to find specific things to uh, poke and prod at, like either thematically or intellectually, just to see what it does when I poke it. Hmm. I can definitely see that and it helps me make kind of sense of some of like your 
not really outliers, but pieces of your work that maybe don't seem to fit uh, together uh, as neatly. Like I'm thinking of specifically stuff like Tony Hawk Pro Shopper versus something like Dear Future, um, <laughs> which are both kind of about uh, being perceived, but in very different ways. One of Dear Future obviously is like asynchronously a vague sort of ghost of a person that you're interacting with versus uh pro pro shopper which is more embodying someone who is desiring being perceived and is not having that uh at least to their their likelihood despite being famous athlete that's a very interesting kind of connecting thread between those uh yeah i mean i was aware that like it was it's definitely something i think about a lot but you were like connecting it to things that i didn't even like realize it connected it to so I'm, i think i'm on to something <laughs> yeah i mean it's I think it's a very specific, like, thing of people who, like, grow up on the internet or, like, the internet is, like, a specifically, like, a social space, not just, like, a research one. Um, mm -hmm. This, like, feeling of being perceived, but from, like, a very self-constructed way. The pieces you put out there are broadly the ones that you choose to. So you're, like, kind of constructing this identity as people are experiencing it and kind of the the tension between that is something that that i've i've noticed a lot of people coming into now as they've like gone from from growing up on the internet to now making their own work and i think it's like a very interesting time to be exploring that with just kind of the hellscape that social media has has like accelerated a lot of those early styles of community but done so in a much larger and and kind of uh antagonistic way yeah it's it's really happening in such a way where i've been like through most of my life a lot of my social connections were through the internet but the the way the internet works now has like shifted like in the past like you know five or six years even like has shifted so heavily to this different form of internet that i really don't know how to use it anymore mm -hmm. um so i think like just my kind of experimental approach to things broadly has been able to like make up for that because i'm uh, you know i, I like uh, grew up with like more uh forums or like chat rooms places where you had very specific small like communities but now everyone is just kind of dumped onto like a single central website that you used and mm -hmm. are told to like just fight it out right yeah, it's like everybody is kind of everywhere, but also just in like one bucket. It's it's like that mix of like on a small forum, like the moderator is a person that you can point at and be like, hey, that's that guy, you know, but on, <laughs> uh, you know, Twitter, it's like either algorithmally generated or done by like people that you will never know. So there's no like in community sense of uh handling conflict or anything like that so just pvp mm -hmm. is enabled for literally everyone and i think like as a i don't know i think of myself as like kind of uh confrontational i don't know how much it comes across but that part of me that likes to poke and prod things like i said in a social aspect can sometimes be endearing or sometimes be very uh very aggressive so it mm. definitely the kind of current um style of social media definitely like aggravates that a bit sometimes but it's also in some ways it's uh made too mm -hmm. yeah i'm i'm pretty much constantly thinking about the i can't even remember the youtuber's name but the video like this video will make you angry uh which i'm sure came out like billions of years ago at this point in internet time trying to unpack the degree to which the modern internet as much as we can define that is sort of built on anger first uh over other emotions and just kind of the way that has implicitly changed just how we interact with people online uh, i find distressing uh first but also just very weird and it's something i'm always curious to see people kind of try and pick apart uh in their work because it feels like a lot of art is still at least art that is like I don't know, has, has like a significant amount of money behind it. Um, stuff that is like widely received 
kind of struggles to to recognize the internet existing and just kind of continues to pretend like it's not there so it's it's weird that it's like this omniscient thing but also something that is only really being talked about within art at like a very kind of small uh independent scale i don't know if you would agree with that or not um i i think i do i'm um like we can see that reflected more i think in like things that delve into ideas on like cyberpunk stuff than like media that is supposed to reflect like the modern present time Mm. because whenever you see um like in like a a tv show or movie or something like that things related to the internet pop up it's always uh either focused on still focused on the concept of like local friend groups like if you see twitter in a tv show it's all tweets from people in the same town Mm -hmm. um or uh, if someone's using the internet, it's specifically to Google what is a vampire because they just have a weird bite mark on their neck and they've never heard of a vampire before. <laughs> yeah, it's weird how often that one comes up. Yeah, I was like thinking a little bit about that because I saw the uh, new uh, Scream movie and part of it, like what I like, like people get annoyed by meta things, even though I, you know, I, I mentioned I have, uh, I enjoy more kind of meta things, but. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm aware of the kind of um, obnoxiousness people treat it with as well, uh, which, you know, gives me more you to be more obnoxious myself. But anyway, um, <laughs> Scream as horror in being meta horror means characters who are aware of horror as a uh, genre, which since horror movies are often just set in the present, makes a lot of sense because horror movies are just a big part of culture uh, broadly. Mm-hmm. Yet, so in most horror movies, it's with someone who's, you know, literally never seen a horror movie in their life, right? Like, it, mm-hmm. the existence of horror movies breaks the subversion of submersion of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, that, you end up with a lot of, like, you know, what is a vampire kind of moments. I haven't seen the new Scream, so I can't, like, go off of that directly. But there is, like, specifically in relation to the internet, how it is sort of used as a meta tool um, in certain works, for instance, like in the new uh, Matrix, which I quite enjoyed. Turning it into something that is both just like still has this degree of flexibility and unknown like possibility, but also is is much more mundane than it was in films in like the 80s and 90s uh, is something that gets at some of that tension from people who like grew up on the internet uh, versus how it is currently, which is mostly just like corporate run in a way that I still don't see really used all that often, I guess. Uh, I think part of it is just, we have this huge history of media and given that there are more, you know, either like, official or like unofficial archival kind of like efforts especially with like the pirating community we just have this massive history of media that like everyone kind of in the moment has access to if you know what to look up and what you're looking for right Mm -hmm. so everything like that exists you know we know that like i think a lot of times in the past uh like when i was growing up especially the, the treatment of media was the idea that like Oh, this was some someone had this idea and it just popped into their to their head, just whole, alone, and perfect as a single mm-hmm. thought that's uninfluenced by anything, right? But uh, if you actually you know look at history, like uh, so many different changes in genre are because they were playing off of you know previous movies, the conventions of those previous movies, the things they either did or didn't like, or were trying to you know surprise you by changing up that formula right and that just creates the constant like shift and churn of a uh, genre that like creates the history of it right so i don't mm-hmm. think meta commentary is that much different than uh, the way that genre works normally mm-hmm. uh everything like i said uh media itself i think of it as like a conversation between the creator and the uh audience but one that neither of them are having directly or even necessarily like mutually understand each other there's something you're getting out of it that you're that came from another person and that you yourself are interpreting as you experience it. And uh, what media does is that it's doing those things with its own influences, right? It's taking those conversations and adding to it. 
so you know it, it builds up to a point where like things uh i think that like text becomes more explicit and when it's more explicit it just becomes meta even though it's there originally mm-hmm. yeah it's almost like in a weird way it's almost like the actual world version of the idea that like people in horror movies have never seen a movie it's like oh people in real life who are making movies have never seen a movie or uh, could not be referencing a movie. Um, they just exist in little vacuums to to create their art. I think movies movies definitely get that a lot, but like you know, broadly in like people who are aware of like cinema history and things like that, like like there's an understanding, like oh yeah, this is a comes from a chain of things. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas like video game culture, I feel like is very different, where like it's really just broadly expected. And I think like, it's a lot less of a thing now than it used to be, but it's more of an expectation that like when someone makes a video game, it's just, you know, unholy, like just pops out of someone's head, just fully formed. Right. And that kind of gets into like auteur theory, but there's a thing where it's like, that's like on a microscopic detail. That's not even a real thing because the only reason we have like, genre-based controller layouts for like the way different video games play is because they're playing off the controls of previous games and the expectations those built right um so it just everything influences everything Mm -hmm. yeah video games are strange because there is kind of that like collection of like the sacred texts or whatever um that people kind of reach to but i think broadly they are maybe even more not guilty but like the way that people think about games is is very directly in relation to one another like this is like zelda this is like metroid like half of the half of the uh sort of genres that are just names of of different games um yeah kind of reinforces that idea that this is part of this other whole and it all traces back to this one game there's a lot less recognition that that game also is reaching back to other other types of art outside of games. Yeah. Which I think is probably like the main missing component. Yeah, definitely. Uh so yeah, getting off a bit of a tangent, I did want to circle back to this idea of kind of being perceived and talk a bit more specifically about uh one of your twine games, uh which I mentioned, Tony Hawk Pro Shopper, which is I mean, pretty much it's pretty much what you would expect. Everyone could go and play it. Uh, it's it's free and doesn't only takes a few minutes. But one of the things I found really entertaining about this game is how it sort of captures a specific style of internet post, uh, which which I think of as like the end everybody clapped style of post of just uh, fantastic and absurd internet stories while also integrating that into the absurdity of the Tony Hawk game specifically uh, and this idea of, like, mild celebrityism um, and, like, what it's like to just be a normal person or not a normal person, but, like, a famous person doing normal person things like going to the grocery store. I was curious a bit more about, like, the origins of this this game and kind of what you were hoping to, to achieve with it. So that one specifically came across, like, for very basic reasons, but I ended up, like, getting a lot out of it, I feel, because someone made a uh, game jam on uh, Itch that, it only got, like, six entries or something like that, but it was Tony Hawk-themed. It was just to make a game about Tony Hawk. Mm. Um, And uh, one of my favorite things about Tony Hawk is just uh, his Twitter presence, where he's constantly tweeting about how people almost recognize him, mm-hmm. but they don't recognize him in the end. They're like, oh, your last name's Hawk. That's kind of like that Tony Hawk guy, you know, but they like <laughs> never realize that they're talking to Tony Hawk. Mm-hmm. And uh, I kind of just like wrote this, like with the kind of simple joke being like, wouldn't it be nice if Tony Hawk was just recognized like just once. And a lot, I think of how it unfolded is just really my sense of humor with a stream of conscious kind of like lens on it. And Mm. I think that itself gives it that conversational kind of quality that feels like one of those and everybody clapped jokes. I also 
Tony Hawk is just kind of a funny figure because <laughs> he's he's like 50 or 60 now, but he's mm. also primarily known as a pro skateboarder, which is kind of skateboarding is still, you know, associated with like youth uh, culture. So the I, image of an aging skateboarder is just very funny to me on its own. Mm-hmm. So I just really wanted to like play with that and that also kind of like part of it got into the idea of like how much like like i i I, you know was growing up at a time where like the skateboarding like culture was a very like big visible kind of like thing you know like the really into the concept of like selling quotation marks like extreme sports to people and playing up that kind of like energy of how extreme it was right Mm mm-hmm um, even if the skateboarders I knew were scrying twigs that I would beat down in the middle of a Walmart because they were <laughs> annoying me. But um, because it had that like extremeness, just like the lens of someone like doing really normal things, but just applying like, oh yeah, like you're in the middle of this like aisle getting a frozen pizza and you're just doing a skateboard trick in the middle of the aisle. Mm-hmm. Most of it, honestly, was to practice my uh, twine skills. Uh, when I was, like, starting to do creative uh, stuff on the internet, I really, uh, I was really, like, inspired by uh, Porpentine Charity Heartscape and really wanted to just mm-hmm. do a lot of, like, twine uh, projects. Um, I only got, like, basically ended up doing two, I think. And that one was largely just on practice, on learning mechanics. So mostly what I spent my time doing for that one was looking up the names of skateboarding tricks and creating a skateboarding trick generator. Outside of that, I think I accidentally made a ritual that bound Tony Hawk to me. And also (laughs) Tony Hawk is my patron saint. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to like, I don't know, go off the deep end with this, with this (laughs) game that is maybe just like a a small thing. Um, But I, I do find it strangely compelling specifically like, thinking about like the first couple of Tony Hawk games and how it was you you explicitly could not get off of your board in those games so then kind of thinking about extrapolating that it was like okay what if Tony Hawk could not ever stop skateboarding what if what if he had to go about his his whole life on a skateboard which is just a very funny idea and i think kind of comes out in in this game of just like picking a pizza up off the floor or something. If I remember how the game went correctly, I think even when he gets in his car, which part of it, it's just him driving his car, is that he does a skateboard trick while in the car specifically. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, I, I couldn't think too much about the logistics of how that would work because it was... Uh, anyway, I, I thought about it uh, was was a third. Um but it, um, in a fun honestly, way. I, yeah. I don't know either. I just write things <laughs> and see what happens. I, I think I think it works. Um, yeah, I was I was I was surprised uh, how how much I got out of it. Similarly, or not, I guess in a very different uh, <laughs> tonally, um, but similarly in terms of being surprised. Last year, I I was very taken by uh, Dear Future, which we mentioned you. Uh, you wrote on, um, and I've had obviously Kevin on here to talk about it before in the past, but I wanted to dig into it a little more specifically from the perspective of the writing, which I think is is interesting in the form of being something that most people are only going to see a very small portion of, if if even that, um, and kind of the specific challenges of writing that kind of thing. Uh, I guess before going into this, just in case people haven't played Dear Future, this is a asynchronously multiplayer photography game that you have 10 minutes to, to explore uh, the world before the sun goes down, and then you save one picture of what you took there, and scattered around there, around the world, are objects that have pieces of writing on them, or, or notes, or otherwise just kind of things that are left behind by uh, the people who are no longer there. And playing the game is interesting and kind of like challenging as a player in the ter- in sense of like so much information is being withheld from you deliberately because it is meant to be something that you kind of 
understand in macro of other people. But I think that creates like an interesting challenge as as a writer um, that I was wondering if you could, I don't know, talk about how, how you approach that. Uh, yeah, uh, it was very interesting to me. Um, I oh, had before that I'd only like really been involved with uh, twine uh, twine games, and a lot of my writing was more my uh, own personal writing, like poetry and uh, short fiction and things like that. Uh, I was actually like when I like first read your uh, article on it, like I think that was like one of the moments where I was like really truly seeing something I was involved with making from the like eyes of a an outsider right and it was really like i don't know your your writing really made me love the game even more than i already did which uh <laughs> i feel like is saying a lot but um yeah as far as getting uh involved with it um it's it's been a really uh weird process for me um i know a lot of uh usc game students who all graduated around the same time kevin is uh was definitely one of them i met Kevin, I think in 2015, and really weird story, even alone, I was uh, homeless at the time too. But uh, from uh, them, I met other people like uh, Colin and Ryan Rose, who you both featured on the show. And Ryan Rose is a really good friend of mine, especially. But anyway, Kevin uh, really liked my like personal writing uh, that they'd seen through uh, just me like posting on Twitter, Twitter whether, whether it's uh, just weird short fiction occult kind of things that I just post sporadically or like actual like pieces I would be like displaying and sending to people. Mm. Uh, and just conversationally, we had a lot, uh, we've in the past had a lot of like very similar um, influences and things that have appealed to us. Um, like around the time um, before I started working on the game, we were talking a lot about um, the idea of like, post-human um, kind of uh, settings, especially, because we're talking about uh, near Automata at the time and uh, mm. the anime Land of the Lustrous. So the idea of, like, life that wasn't, um, you know, biologically similar to uh, being a human and, like, what, you know, a human is through kind of that lens was pretty, was a thing that was, like, fascinating both of us. So that was, mm. like, kind of the grounding point for me uh, being pulled into uh, Dear Future. Um, actually, my entire scope of the the for the project was going to be very different than the end result. Um, me and uh, Colin were both uh, both the writers, so we were like splitting half the work. Originally, the entire scope of the way the game is uh, set up, which is basically players collectively try to. Uh, you know, they, they take pictures of the world, and uh, once um, a picture of each of these, like, uh, major artifacts is taken a picture of, it uh, unlocks basically the ending sequence. From uh, there, basically that entire cycle, we'd planned to do that multiple times with different, like, looking kind of versions of the city, more mm -hmm. or less. And I was basically going to have an entire section like that to myself. Uh, but we had to basically scope things down to just the uh, one uh, layer, we were calling them. So mm -hmm. what happened there is that we took the core idea for the la uh, layer that I think um, Colin and Kevin worked together to like create the basis of. So me and Colin basically rewrote that. Partly, partly just uh, to like clean things up, but also to get me more like involved in the uh, writing process since that wasn't like, since I originally would have had a, like a bigger scope of what I was doing in that regard. Mm -hmm. So from there, we basically split the work pretty much evenly. We each wrote about half of the uh, major artifacts and then half of the uh, discoverables, which is like the ghosts and just like objects littering the city. I, on top of that, I also wrote the opening sequence that you see every time you start the game, and I also wrote the ending sequence that the last player who completes the cycle will see. As as far as, like, thematically or, like, um, thinking about it in terms of, like, pieces that people would see, like, out of order or, or like, only one or, or two of, kind of, how did, how did you approach, like, I guess trying to make something that, that felt 
if not cohesive, at least like compelling if depending on like where you came in? Um, honestly, a lot of that was rooted in, I think, two things that are kind of um, interrelated to each other is one is that I approached a lot of my writing uh, for the like kind of like major kind of artifact, kind of like the short stories of the players when lock as kind of like um, more rooted in um, poetry, right? Like I was trying to create a poetic and evocative sense of the kind of core feeling around that piece. A part of that is because that's where a lot of, like, historically my writing is rooted in, but also because uh, mechanically the game kind of revolves around this camera that's supposed to be bringing uh, feelings into the present. So I wanted to take this bit of narrative that we were showing you, and I wanted to show you the emotions of that moment rather than just you know, directly telling you what's happening the way that, like, a lot of, like, um, discoverables in, in games will do. Mm-hmm. Then uh, for the kind of like uh, stuff that's littered around the city, like the ghosts and the uh, object descriptions, a lot of that was this sense of like me wanting to create something that feels uh, mysterious and ephemeral. A lot of it kind of gets into the uh, concept that people uh, connect to uh, anime a lot. I'm very anime influenced. Um, as far as, you know, other obnoxious things about my personality. <laughs> so that gets into, like, this concept of uh, mono no uh, aware, which is basically getting into, um, how would I describe it? Um, it's I think it literally describes to the pathos of things, but it's basically just about the kind of awareness and melancholy of uh, how impermanent things are. And um, a lot of... Uh, really mysterious and cryptic anime kind of have that at the core of it, despite the fact that we don't exactly have a clear phrase that translates the same way. Like, um, Memento Mori is kind of like the closest thing I think we have, right? Hmm. So it was just kind of focused on the kind of wistfulness of being in a place after everything had already gone wrong. I wanted to try to sell kind of the you know magic and mystery of that in itself while also like the you know tragedy of the the people who had lived through those events as well since you know you're seeing echoes of people who from all throughout the, the time period the city existed right so some of it is mm-hmm. from like people who were more comfortable in better times some people it's people who are really just on the like bad end of like the authority of the city and like the effects of that I think what struck me about it is how it's approaching like a an apocalyptic event, basically. Um, but, but typically, a lot of media takes that and either goes towards how do we prevent this apocalypse from happening, or how do we like rebuild the world after it has already occurred. And this is kind of somewhere not even in the middle, but just like somewhere else where it's like the world is gone and we're just kind of drifting on it. Uh, what, it, what little is left. And I, and I find that like, it's, it's not like a cynical game, but it's, it's approaching. It's a, it's a much like, I guess, sadder view of the apocalypse than I think a lot of, media is willing to indulge yeah just to speak on that really quickly Mm -hmm. a lot of like times we have apocalyptic narratives um you know they're being made as like very like big expensive uh movies and things like that not that they don't exist outside of that because they you know they certainly do but uh, culturally that a lot of our grounding point is like these like kind of big budget movies and i think Mm -hmm. part of why that happens of being like um, uh, the the kind of hopefulness of those movies is because they, instead of like looking at like wealthy people who are responsible for uh, the misuse of our resources, it tries to collectively pin the blame on every living person. Mm-hmm. And so therefore it says like, you know, oh, if we all like band together and like do the right things, we can just rebuild things without the like, 
you know, the, the, the taking the power that is misusing those things. Right. Like, like right. It, it tries to make it more about uh, the sense of rebuilding without like the question of how do you get the uh, resources and power you need to rebuild. Right. Because they don't like the answer to that question. <laughs> yeah. So this is like, um, uh, it definitely like uh, me and uh, Kevin were, I think coming at different angles, but in like, similar places with uh how we were handling this kevin had a lot of vision kind of like politically for like what they wanted to uh do with this uh game kind of and they, they definitely talked about that in their uh own uh interview with you for me i was approaching things uh you know like i mentioned i'm an occultist i was kind of approaching it more from this like spiritual side of things kind of like wanting to dig into these like questions of like what does the spiritual rot of uh, empire look like right mm -hmm. what is it like to live inside of that rot itself and the ways that affects your uh perception and your ability to even conceive of specific concepts mm -hmm. and this is a weird even like you said so few people will see any single element of writing that i uh, have done in the game um so there's a a, a point that kind of comes in with the ending that i think really kind of sums up a lot of like what i'm digging into since like i think one player per cycle will ever see the ending i think you can i know someone's recorded it on youtube but it's actually hard to find it by googling it so it's <laughs> like i said it's a really weird experience to get to find any of my writing in the game which mm -hmm. you know uh, if if you want to take that challenge yourself and like look in, into uh, look into it, I'm 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 happy to hear about that. But uh, the ending, I was like kind of like getting into this like um, idea that like the I don't th we don't really like explicitly explain what the the pillar is, but uh, there is a moment where you're approaching the pillar, and I kind of give it this narrative voice, and like if I were to you know, if the, if the pillar were to be, like, saying one thing, broadcasting one thing, what would it be was kind of this, like, question I was asking myself. And uh, what the answer I came up with was this phrase that was uh, cannibalize everything. Hmm. Um, and uh, I was really viewing these kind of uh, impulses as uh, cannibalistic in that it wants to use up, you know, everything around it. And once that's left, then it will just, you know, use up itself. Like it's a, it's a permanently kind of like destructive uh, impulse. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of uh, my uh, kind of like intent was to be like, this is what, uh, you know, what happens when you follow that impulse. Uh, it really gets into these like ideas of um, specifically like, uh, Philip K. Dick and how he talks about uh, the the empire never ended was his phrase, right? He says he uh, saw the empire of the past, the empire of the present, and the empire of the future superimposed on each other. Mm -hmm. They were just all the same place. He really digs into that in his essay, uh, How to Build a Universe That Doesn't Fall Apart Two Days Later. Um, and a lot of people, they, when they think of Philip K. Dick, they think it's a very funny kind of uh, essay because they're like, oh, Philip K. Dick thinks the world is literally ancient Rome. And the answer to that is, well, yes, he does. But also, no, that's not exactly what he's getting at. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'm, like I said, mentioned, I mentioned I'm a weird occultist. So that kind of thinking is um, appealing to me. I probably uh, believe in and engage with a lot of ideas that people would think are delusional, but I'm at least aware of it. I mean, that's about as much as we can hope for collectively is just to be aware of our own delusions. Um, yeah, I, I definitely feel that. To, to go back a little bit about what you're saying about like kind of the approach that so much apocalyptic media takes, it is a, is a good observation that the framing of so many of these movies is basically hum humans as a collective have failed through through some ambiguous uh cause um or like the, the earth is cleansing itself of us or something uh yeah i was um re-watching or i was watching well partially re-watching some of the monster verse movies which is like the like recent string of american like godzilla movies mm -hmm. and um 
uh, King of the Monsters really specifically gets into this idea of, like, we're all collectively at fault for, like, the energy crisis, for war existing, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. It's a, a very, like, neoliberal impulse to kind of just, like, collectively place the ba- blame on every living human because, you know, it's it's easier to say you just need to stop buying paper bags, you know, than um, you need to stop, you use less water than, like, interrogate how much water rich people use in their fountains every day right Mm -hmm. i do also think there is just a degree of when you reach that level of wealth like your own collective delusion is that other people are are as kind of self-concerned and environmentally abusive as you like I, i i sincerely believe there's like a degree that when people are conceptualizing like this as like a a universal problem it is it is because of their own projecting their own view of of humanity onto everybody else yeah i i definitely feel that i i that's that's like definitely a little bit of what i'm i was getting into with dear future because mm-hmm. Um, uh, a lot of the, the kind of narrative we see in Dear, Dear Future is centered around a character named uh, Sill, who was, like, the, like, emperor of the uh, city that you're in. Mm-hmm. And um, Colin wrote a lot of the early parts of his narrative that, like, dealt with, like, Sill's, like, rise to power. And I wrote a lot of the um, ending parts of it that was like the end of uh, Sill's reign and the kind of aftermath of that and uh, I was kind of getting into this idea that I, I've seen it um, related things in a few other places uh, there's like a bit towards the end of uh, Disco Elysium that gets into this idea of um, you know when you're uh, when like the the true face of like um, you know capitalism and wealth like wants to kill you it has to like take off its like face and show you the the truly inhuman thing beneath it to kill you and um uh there's this uh, other series of uh kind of poetry uh prose uh books i like called uh sea witch by uh never north that uh kind of get into this idea of uh it's this like concept of uh the it's referred to as the 78 men who cause pain and just this idea that there are these specific, you know, circumstances that, uh, that you know, they relate to wealth and power that just remove people from really any sort of central conception of uh, humanity. And the way that kind of, like, appears in Into Your Future itself is that, like, the, uh, you know, still, still connecting with the pillar, this, like, cannibalistic impulse and... Um, being unable to see anything past that, right? Mm-hmm. Like to the uh, to the cannibal king, all people are cannibals. Yeah, I I will have to check out those books. It sounds really fascinating. And yeah, I, I I did naturally see that portion of of Dear Future, so it's definitely puts it in like I don't know, reframed some things um, for me. That I think when I initially played it, the the tower, the spire was sort of more of a inert presence. So thinking of it as something actively antagonistic is a really interesting, like, I don't know, twist on sort of just how I, how I thought about a lot of my interactions in that game. Uh, I think like me and uh, Kevin, like I said, we both had different frameworks for viewing the pillar. So I was writing very much with like what, Kevin intended in mind also with my kind of like uh like I said kind of like occult ideas like mm. I a, a cult of ideas often involve like the um duology of like symbols that's not quite maybe quite the right word but symbols that in the way that you know metaphor means that a symbol represents an object whereas a cult is like a kind of like a uh, growing language of symbols in a lot of ways uh things both functionally exist as the um, symbol and the physical object simultaneously in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. And that is how I kind of view what I write is 
both as in this like language of spiritual constructs, but also as this like actual place in this actual world uh, that exists, right? So it's, I feel like it's never just one of those things. Mm -hmm. It allows for this framework that opens you up to seeing how you experience it and what you get out of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's kind of one of the things to just quickly detour um, before we run out of time. But one of the things that I find compelling about your writing about games, um, like some of the stuff you've written for Deep Hell, is that it kind of seems to be interrogating games, like both first as as games and then also as your relationship to them and then as the game kind of abstractly as like this this force that just exists i think like your recent piece i think no feast for the unfed might be i i forget the exact title um Uh, underfed yeah no feast for the underfed okay yeah um where you're kind of talking about the way that these different game worlds exist in your memory it has this like quality that that makes them both like obviously like they are they are both the memory and they are just like the game itself as a as a as a as a piece of entertainment but also this like elevated not like quite spiritual thing but this like sort of ephemeral uh experience that is just apart from the game itself is like the recollection of it and the the impact that it has and how it may or may not actually like reside in your memory um, that I find very interesting sort of in conversation with some of the ideas you've been talking about. Uh, yeah, I think both like kind of like what I'm getting into with Dear Future and also a lot of my like kind of recent writing, especially what I'm doing for Deep Hell, it really specifically is digging into a very, very specific Gnostic anxiety that I experience. Mm. Um, which is really hard to explain and uh, classify, but yeah, um, just uh, constantly the uh, kind of like idea of being trapped by the conventions of reality and uh, the you know the the world that I exist in and the way that like systems of power relate to that. There's uh, a sense of. Uh, kind of just inter- me interrogating that feeling in and of, in and of itself. Mm-hmm. I often come away from your work feeling not like, not like I, I misunderstood, but like the, the ideas are just still kind of floating around. Like it's a, I keep saying ephemeral, but it feels like a sort of, I don't know, a style of writing that is almost more trying to provoke me um, than it is like to argue a point. Uh, yeah, I've, I've been telling people my kind of recent motto for writing is, I am trying to hurt you. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense that you would you would be writing on Deep Hell. Um, <laughs> that is yeah. that is kind of their brand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, ended up talking way more about about Dear Future than I anticipated. Um, I don't want to te- keep you too long. Uh, I know you mentioned a few of these at the start, but uh, if people wanted to find your work, all the various ways that it takes place, um, or just interact with you uh, on the internet, uh, where where could they where could they find you, or, or what, what would be the places to to look? Uh, you can find me personally on Twitter at uh, sweet n awful, and that's letter n between the sweet and the awful. Um, I also have a, uh, right now I kind of, I'm trying to like keep updated a, a card website that I use to list things I've done or am doing. And that's uh, Karen, uh, K-A-R-I-N dash malady dot uh, card uh, dot co. And that's card with two R's. I like to have uh, every guest kind of close the show out with something they found cool or inspiring or just intrigued them. Uh, maybe or maybe just something cursed they want to pass on to other people. Um, I don't really know how I'm gonna define this going into this year. So I guess this is yeah 
any anything that you feel like compelled to share uh, to close the show out, if you have something in particular, uh, that'd be cool. Uh, cool. I'm just going to shout out a bunch of people that I like. Uh, because I uh, love weird queer perverts writing shock and sleaze. <laughs> uh, Till Delta at uh, Till Delta X on Twitter. Musician does, I'm going to call it dark electronic. I don't know how genres work. Um, or tilldelta.bandcamp.com. Uh, new album coming out. I've heard samples of it. It's going to rule. Uh, Persephone uh, Aaron Hudson at Plaguing Possum on Twitter. A horror writer. Uh, reminds me that the real cannibals were the friends we made along the way. Uh, <laughs> Frog K at Yuri Rando on Twitter. Does like flash fiction and poetry. Um, amazing insight into the spiritual rot at the heart of America. Blake at underscore dispossessed. Uh, most insightful writing about cat boys on the internet. Those are all cool people. Oh, yeah, you, you came very prepared. Uh, those All of those people sound incredible. I'm very intrigued by by uh, best writing about cat boys on the internet. I don't even, I don't know how contested a field that is, but I'm, I'm intrigued. I'm not sure either, but they certainly it's certainly them yeah <laughs> don't don't know the feel but they've they've won it uh either way uh cool well thank you so much for for taking the time to come on you know it's kind of a different sort of episode um but <laughs> i i appreciated chatting with you yeah very much looking forward to reading more of your work whether that's in deep hell or popping up in video games that i don't realize you've written um uh -huh. Yeah, I, I think there's going to be a lot more of not realizing I've written video <laughs> games, both for you and me. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. I, I love, <laughs> I love, uh, I love recognizing people and just being surprised by, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a small yeah. world, but in like a cool way. Uh, I'll, I guess I'll finish this by saying, you know, what the funniest thing about me winding up working in video games is, uh, I've been telling people I hate video games for years. <laughs> so, Ugh. just happens, I guess. Yeah, yeah, you and me both. <laughs> Alright, thanks for having me. Critical Care is produced by me, Nate Kiernan, with music by Desired. You can find Desired on Bandcamp at desired.bandcamp.com. I'm on Twitter at Nate Kiernan, and you can keep up with everything critical related at critical.com. If you'd like to help keep the lights on, you can support the show on Coffee. And until next time, stay safe, stay home, and remember, this is not game over. We're still fighting, and we're going to get through this.